1: Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, the channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with William J. Bush about his book, Greenback Dollar, The Incredible Rise of the Kingston Trio, published in 2013 by the Scarecrow Press. Two young men from Hawaii, one from Southern California. They meet in the San Francisco Bay Area. A shared love of Hawaiian, Tahitian country and folk music, not to mention drinking and carousing, brings them together to play frat parties and college bars in the area. They played the Cracked Pot on the 101 and the Purple Onion in North Beach. They recorded a version of murder ballad Tom Dooley, which became a huge hit, not only across genre charts in the U.S., but across the world. And the Kingston Trio, from 1958 through 1961, were one of the most popular bands in the world. They were very much the catalyst for the revival of folk music in the late 50s and early 60s. The success of artists such as Simon and Garfunkel, the Mamas and the Papas, and yes, even Bob Dylan owe much to the trio as their predecessors. In Greenback Dollar, Bill Bush chronicles the full career of the Kingston Trio, starting with the Dave Gard Trio through the John Stewart Trio and even to an extent to modern versions of the band that contain no original members but do continue the spirit. His story contains the important characters, Frank Werber, Voyle Gilmore, David Buckwheat, places Hawaii, Salt Lake City, Notre Dame, and events, A Plane Crash, the recording of specific albums that shaped the career of this band indeed changed the direction of popular music in the mid-20th century. William J. Bush lives in Seminole, Florida, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, Bill, and welcome to New Books in Popular Music. Thank you very much, Matt. Uh, good to be here. No, thanks for being on our show. Um, let's start, please, first with a little bit of your biography. Tell us you know, where you're from, uh, etc.
0: Well, I was born in Florida, but uh, I spent most of my... Uh, year I went. Well, first of all, I went to high school in New Orleans, and I went to uh, to college in in Austin, Texas, for my freshman and sophomore year at Saint Edward's University, and then I went to uh, the University of Illinois, and I got my undergraduate and master's degree from Illinois. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have worked uh, various places around the country. Uh, worked for. Uh, big agencies in Boston, including Arnold and Company, and uh, uh, worked for Young and Rubicam uh, in St. Petersburg and different areas like that, which is another big agency, and uh, OZell, where I was creative director in Tampa, and I've been a music journalist uh, most of my career. In addition to that, as as you can tell from the places that I've worked, I've also been uh, an advertising uh, copywriter and creative director uh, with major agencies as well as uh, my own agency, Mission Co. Advertising. And uh, at the same time, I've been a music journalist uh, working primarily music magazines, guitar player magazine, as well as uh, acoustic guitar and various other publications. Uh, I've also been, uh, I've done a lot of work for the Martin Guitar Company. I've uh, done a lot of work on their sounding board, which is their uh, company magazine, and different things like that, but also done a lot of work on the Kingston Trio, uh, which is also another one of my all-time favorite groups, which included uh, uh, writing for Bear Family, uh, for the uh, Kingston Trio two-box sets, uh, Capitol Records for some of their uh, major compilations, and uh, various different things like that. So I've sort of been called... Called upon whenever they needed somebody that knew the Kingston Trio very well, and uh, I finally uh, have completed my book after many years' research uh, on the Kingston Trio. I think it's probably it is the the first um, in-depth biography of the group, which was published uh, in December of last year by Scarecrow Press.
1: That that's interesting. That I mean, there's such a an influential group to have. All the way in 2013, the, the first biography history of the band.
0: Well, it really is. Um, I'm not quite sure why that is, uh, because they were such a major influence. Right. On uh, in popular music and certainly in folk music and the, the um, reemergence of folk. Mm-hmm and uh, the whole folk revival, uh, they were the ones that uh, really uh, set it off in 1958. With the right. of Pooley,
1: so uh, cool. you you also, Bill, ha- had some uh, personal relationships with the members of, of the Kingston Trio, correct?
0: Well, they've all been uh, close friends of mine uh, over the years. As a music journalist, that's how I met them originally. Body chain, of course. Uh, Nick Reynolds was one of my closest friends for many years. John Stewart, uh, I met them all through uh, writing uh, for Press Magazine and different publications like that. I just became uh, real good friends with them. It was just uh, simpatico,
1: if you will. So, so and, how much?
0: Uh, go ahead. Please
1: go ahead. And,
0: uh, well, I got to know them, uh, I the bottom line is I got to know them based on, uh, first of all, interviewing them for for various publications. Okay, that they were in, I did, I did, a. I think probably the first big article on the Kingston Trio, uh, I did it with a two-part issue for Threat Magazine, which used to be, the, I don't believe it's, in, it's still around anymore but it was the, the sister publication to guitar player with their acoustic publication and uh, so that's how I first met them that's way back in 83 or so like that I, found. I I'd actually met them in Daytona really back in 1967 when I saw them <clears throat> when they appeared in uh, uh, in concert down here in Daytona and uh, that's the first time I met them, but it wasn't until years later that I, that I got to know them personally. And uh, they're great friends over the years.
1: So, so as a writer, as, as someone who's, uh, you know, I don't know uh, uh, how interested you were in writing something objective or not, but how does your, you know, these friendships that you had with them, how did that play into your writing of the book?
0: Well, first of all, what it allowed me was access and, and I'm a music journalist, and uh, you know I'm neither an apologist for the Kingston Trio, uh, despite the fact that, that I think they were unquestionably one of the most influential groups in popular music. All of that notwithstanding my obligation as a music journalist is to be objective, and it's to be objective both in a positive sense and in and, 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 and issues that, that might be controversial. Think thing about the Kingston Trio, there wasn't really a lot of controversy around. You know, probably uh, the most contentious part of the Kingston Trio's experience uh, was with the the folk revival. You know, a lot of people that had never been exposed to traditional music were exposed first through the Kingston Trio, and they really liked it. And then when they got immersed in traditional music and, and uh, ethnic music and everything, well, they... Sort of viewed the decent trio of these fraudulent interlopers, <laughs> you know, that's taking their sacred idiom and making it commercial. So that's where the controversy, if there's ever been any, and I certainly never uh, uh, not addressed that issue uh, square on uh, in anything that I've written. And. The fact that I can be even-handed in writing about them is really, a, a, I would think, a, a prerequisite for anybody that, that's writing about music. You know, I mean, you can personally like their music, and it, that doesn't mean that you you're, you turn a blind side to uh, what the other side of the arguments are, which I've, I've always uh, prided myself on being very even-handed. So in answering your question, it hasn't affected my objectivity one iota. It has uh, enhanced my access to the group, and I think to the quality of, of information that I've gotten because they've been friends and they've always trusted me and uh, to tell it like it was, and that's all they've ever asked. They've never asked me to to color or uh, to do anything to their story. They've always been totally upfront. So that's as best as I can
1: answer that. I think. <laughs> yeah. So so let let's get right to the book, and we'll we'll kind of follow it along uh, uh, along uh, the the order and the chapters that you write. So let's let's okay. begin at the begin at the beginning. Tell us um, uh, you, uh, about the biographies a little bit of, of Nick Reynolds and then Bob Shane and and Dave Guard, please. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, Nick Reynolds uh, was was from Coronado, California. His dad was a Navy captain. Uh, He was born in San Diego, just across the uh, bay there, but he grew up uh, and was raised in Coronado, California. his exposure to music uh, was there was a lot of island music in and out of Coronado. It's a Navy base, a major Navy base. Um, so he would hear a lot of he would hear a lot of music uh, from the islands, Hawaiian music, and uh, He was into all kinds of music that he heard there. Uh, he was also at the same time growing up, you know was influenced uh, and listened to uh, popular music at the time of the the 40s and 50s. His dad, being a captain, would bring home a lot of tunes uh, uh, from around the world. Uh, His family uh, were very uh, musically oriented, not professionally. But his dad always had uh, Martin ukuleles. Uh, and he and Nick and his two sisters uh, learned how to play ukulele as kids and uh, were taught songs and, uh, by their father, uh, uh, Captain Reynolds. So that was, a, uh, that was a good exposure for him, and they had a lot of family sing-alongs. He learned a lot. He picked up a lot from his sisters, who he said are really the great singers in, their, in, in his family. And uh, uh, they had amazing harmony. That's where he learned harmony. And he one time told me, he said, if you really want to know about the great voices in my family, he says, you need to, to listen to my sisters. Hmm. And he said, uh, uh, Barbara and Jane, he said they, were, they just had wonderful voices and, and wonderful harmony, which was, which was taught to them by their father. Uh, Captain uh, His name was Stuart Captain Stuart Reynolds And uh, so he grew up there And and, uh, you know as he got older He spent a lot of time uh, You know in border towns Tijuana, different places uh, Which is close to uh, You know The Mexican border is close to uh, uh, Coronado San Diego area So he picked up a lot of uh, Big influences uh, You know Mariachi music and uh, which he heard, and just all kinds of stuff. It was just a great uh, uh, mixing pot. If you if you were there, were all kinds of he heard everything from body songs to you know traditional Mexican music to all kinds of different things. So that's where he grew, that's where he grew up in Coronado, and uh, later when he went away to college, he went to. Um, Menlo, which, uh, Menlo School of Business, which was not far from Stanford. And in lots of ways, Menlo uh, uh, School of Business Administration was used as a kind of a prep school for getting into Stanford. But uh, that's where Nick went, and that's where he graduated, and that's where he met Bobby Shane, too. So that was Nick Reynolds' story, and I'm not even... It would take hours to go through all uh, all the all those, uh, interesting right. things about his career and, and background. but that's a fair overview.
1: And now Bobby Shane and uh, Donald Dave Guard, please. Well,
0: Bobby grew up, first of all, Bobby grew up in Hawaii as did Dave Gard. They were both I mean, they were both born there. Bobby Shane was born in Hilo, Hawaii, and uh, his father was uh, uh, in the sporting goods was an importer of sporting goods uh, and and uh, sports equipment and stuff
1: like that. And uh, uh, the family moved from Hilo to
0: um, Honolulu, which is where he met at, uh, Dave Garth. So he met Dave Gard at uh, Unahoe School there in, in in Honolulu, and they became great friends. And uh, at the time, Bobby, uh, like everybody uh, at that time, uh, played ukulele, and uh, uh, he taught Dave Gard that and taught him his first chords on tenor guitar, which essentially was uh, how the ukulele, he tuned his ukulele to the first four strings of the guitar. Bobby did taught Dave, and uh, so that's how that's how the two of them got together as uh, students. I think in at uh, Punahou School, and uh, they became uh, interested in uh, spent a lot of time on the beach, and they particularly liked Tahitian music because the Hawaiians, all the Hawaiians, they're pretty much covered the Hawaiian music, but the the Tahitian music. uh, which they felt was much more interesting and wilder rhythms and everything on that. That was their their thing. And they also, you know, learned lots of body tunes, sailor tunes, and different things like that. And that music in Honolulu. Bobby uh, uh, Shane's uh, uh, mother, I believe, is from Utah and uh, Salt Lake City. And his father, I believe, was born in, in Honolulu, uh, or was born in the islands, and he and uh and Bobby was born there. So mm-hmm. they were not they were not Hawaiians. They were Honolulu I guess you would call it, you know? <laughs> and um, and they were Americans. Okay. Uh, you know, all of their families had their roots done early in uh in the states, there were also, I believe, Bob was related to to, to some of the missionaries that came to um, came to the islands, and uh, uh, so there were there were relationships there with people that originally come from Boston. Actually, missionaries that had come from Boston, and but essentially, you know, they were they always used uh, Dave and Bobby always viewed. Uh, the United States as
1: the motherland, if you will. So that's what I've got on that. So so it seems uh, important to the story, and or we'll see if you think it's important, that um, you know, whenever we, we read stories of popular music and rock or folk, um, uh, race and class kind of play into it. it the, these three guys, Nick, Bob, and Dave, all come from uh, relatively privileged positions in our society and, and I think that you know, their popularity on the college circuit uh, comes from that what do you think uh, I mean their well, colleges I think,
0: I think I think first of all okay that that they were certainly they were certainly uh, uh, less that they were privileged I think um, but that the their background musically, I think, fit in. I mean, you know, Dave Guard. Dave Guard uh, went to Stanford, graduated from Stanford, and went to Stanford Business School. In fact, okay, so it's a function of his education. That's for sure. Very, very brilliant man. Bobby Shane uh, ultimately graduated from Menlo School of Business Administration. He didn't get his degree until years later. Um, uh, and I think he dropped out in his senior year, or uh, he did not have enough credits to graduate. But, but years later, he did get his degree. Uh, Nick, of course, uh, came from a, a privileged family. Uh, he went to school at uh, uh, University of Arizona and uh, flunked out. Ultimately, San Diego State, and, and uh, he. Uh, eventually wound up at Menlo, which is in uh, uh, Menlo Park, which is not far from, uh, from Stanford, Palo Alto. And Bobby said to him, he said, you've got to meet this friend of mine, Dave Garter, who was at Stanford. So that's how those three got together. Nick and Bobby were pals, and, and uh, Dave and uh, Bobby knew each other from Honolulu, were friends, and they all got together. And then when Bobby uh, left Menlo, uh, Nick and Dave became very close friends and uh, started uh, uh, playing in a group, Dave Garden, the Philipsonians. And uh, so it all coalesced, you know, uh, in that area, and then moved on to San Francisco where they got gigs at the, at the Purple Onion in particular, and later at the Hungry Eye.
1: And different places. Around. Mm-hmm. So, so give us a little, give us a little more detail of that. Then of, of, when when does the Kingston Trio first exist with that name, and how does it come to be?
0: It came to be when they met a publicist by the name of Frank Werber. And Frank Werber was a publicist for The Hungry Eye as well as The Purple Onion. And he had gotten a tip from a waiter about this group that were playing down at a, at a college beer joint by place called The Crack Pot, which was near Stanford. And so I guess he went down and, and he saw them one night. but. You know, there's been a lot of folklore about how somehow he was so mesmerized in the group that he uh, had to sign a contract on a maskin, which is not true. It's just baloney. But it did introduce them to him, and with Dave Gard, who had gotten a uh, a gig up in. Uh, in san francisco play in a place it wasn't the purple onion but it was was a place up in in california or up in san francisco excuse me uh they got a gig and i think it might have been the spaghetti factory or one of those places and that really set the stage for it and they decided they uh nick and nick and dave had invited frank Werber to come up and see them dave guard in the calypsonian israel bobby was in 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 honolulu having having uh uh, been asked to leave Menlo because he didn't have enough credits or whatever it was. His grades weren't where they needed to be. And he invited, the, uh, Nick and, and Dave invited Frank Wilber to come up and to see them. When Bobby Shane left Menlo, I'm not sure that he flunked out, although uh, that's the story, but, but he didn't have enough credits to graduate, I know that. And he went back uh, to Honolulu to work in his father's athletic supply company which really didn't last long and that's when he started uh, playing professionally as a solo artist singer in, in different taverns and things in Honolulu. Meanwhile, stateside uh, Dave Guard and Nick uh, started playing under the, the Dave Guard and the Calypsonians and they would get gigs around that area and they got one up in San Francisco, the Italian Village, uh, which was kind of a restaurant with a lounge thing. I think it was in the basement and whatever. And, and uh, so they had invited uh, Frank Werber, whom, who had come down to see them one time uh, down at, uh, at the Cracked Pot, which was in uh, near Stanford in, in, in Palo Alto. Menlo Park one or the other was halfway between them and uh, that's when that's when Werber really got interested in them and uh, Werber said you know it it was easier it was difficult to get bookings for a group that had four people in it and he told them that it would be easier him to get some bookings if they were a trio and you know Bob Shane was over in Honolulu and Nick wrote him a public letter said you need to get back over here because we have a gig at the Italian village and so Bobby came back over and he and Dave and uh, uh, and Nick got together and one of the first things they want they had to to Weber sat them down and say, Okay, what are you gonna call yourself? And it's been said that they Dave Garden Clotsonians that all also worked under the working title of the Kingston Quartet. Um, and uh, that they just shortened it to the Kingston Trio. Uh, the Beav the Cliftonians, or the Kingston Quartet, or whatever they wanted to call themselves at the time—any name would do, you know—and mm-hmm. uh, that's how the trio emerged. And they thought it was a perfect name, okay, because it 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 had both uh, an island feel, you know, like a Jamaican feel of Kingston, Jamaican, and also had kind of a uh, uh, an Ivy League sound, like you know, uh, the Kingston Quartet, the Kingston Trio with Ivy League sounding. But that's how they got their name, Mm -hmm. and it stuck. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where the name came about, and they were the Kingston Trio, and they're still the Kingston Trio.
1: At one point, uh, you, you write that Bobby Shane was the foundation of the Kingston Trio. What do you mean by that? Well, the foundation of the Kingston
0: Trio... Sound-wise is Bobby Shane. Bobby Shane's voice is probably the most distinctive voice in the Greek, and he had a great voice, great unique voice, baritone voice. He was a great rhythm guitarist. I don't think he played more than three or four chords, but boy, did he play them. He had a lot of power coming off that Martin D-28. And uh, he was the lead voice. He was the lead voice uh, throughout the Kingston Trio. I mean, they would all sing solo solo uh, verses and, and, you know, sometimes would sing solo songs on their albums. But primarily, the Kingston Trio was based on Bobby, tree, uh, Bobby Shane's voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nick, who is a fine singer, has a great singing voice, um, was a master of harmonization, which he learned from his sisters and his father. And he could sing anything. He could harmonize with anything. And uh, Bobby told me, he said, you know what? He said, Nick was the only singer that I, a person that I immediately liked personally from the get-go, and he was the only person that I knew that could instantly Pick a harmony out. He didn't have to go over it ten times. He said he knew instinctively where to sing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you put those two together, and that's the Kingston Trio. That defines the Kingston Trio sound. Now Dave Guard, who also had a fine singing voice, his forte was that he got the Joker parts those were the parts that filled in either above or below or in between or whatever of what of what Reynolds and Shane were singing that was that was the total capitalization of of the sound Mm -hmm. what he called the poker parts
1: and and Dave
0: that was later okay because it was it was the least It wasn't as prominent as the harmony, and it wasn't as prominent as the lead voice, but it was all important because it filled in everywhere. If you're just talking vocally, Mm -hmm. uh, it was also the most transparent, where you listen to a Kingston trio tune, you can hear Bobby, and you can hear Nick. And sometimes you can hear Dave, okay? But he's filling in either below or above or around or whatever that he did. So... That was, that was what but the sound was based on Bobby Shane, their, the, the, base, the basic mm-hmm. voice in the group, the lead voice in the group was Bobby Shane.
1: So, so let's skip forward a little bit, and um, how do they go about uh, getting their first record and their first label? Their first record,
0: there was a producer at Capitol Records. When they got with Frank Werber, he was sending out demo tapes of the group, of the Kingston Trio, to different record labels, to like Dot Records and uh, sent one to Capitol and uh, might have even sent one to DECA or, or different places. But, but um, I know that he sent one to Capitol, but there was a uh, a producer, pop producer at Capitol by the name of Boyle Gilmore who has been with Capitol for a number of years, but he became, uh, at at one point, the head of of A&R at Capitol, but he was was primarily a producer, he was one of their top producers. And he had heard about them when they were singing at Purple Onion, and he really liked a lot. But he had first sent somebody else up there, a guy named Lee, I think it was Lee Gillette was the guy's name, I'm not absolutely certain. And he wanted to have him Check them out. And Lee came back and wasn't impressed at all. And, and uh, in fact, uh, Boyle Gilmore had said one time he wasn't sure that Lee actually had ever heard them. But he went up himself to to um to get a listen to them for line and he was knocked out. He thought they were terrific. And he was the one. They got the deal at Capitol Records, a contract for one album, I believe it was, to begin with. Dot wanted to sign them to a singles only, and Werber didn't want to do that. So um, that, that's how they got their first album uh,
1: with capital, T-99. T-996. That's how the aficionados refer to them, right? I you, think so, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you, you mentioned at one point uh uh, there, there's an important moment or time in their career that that is based in Salt Lake City. Can you tell that story, please?
0: Well, I'll tell you how that started. That album, you know, I, let me say this, that from the outset, Capitol Records wasn't sure that they had any big deal in the Kingston Trio, okay? well Gilmore liked them a lot. <clears throat> But it could have been just a one album deal. And that album was sent out to a lot of radio stations, uh, one of which was in Salt Lake City. And um, and that's really, uh, there were a, a couple of disc jockeys in um, Salt Lake City who um, heard the album and they liked the Kingston Trio and they they liked very much they found the song Tom Dooley on there that they particularly liked and uh, uh, that really really uh, uh, made all of a sudden Salt Lake City was in love with the Kingston Trio And that happens in different markets like that. You know, different groups always, you know, either break out in one place or another. And sometimes it's just in an obscure place. Uh, Salt Lake City, while it's not a small city, it's not a really big one either. And um, and that's uh, that's really where their popularity started. They were like. They had, at one time, uh, three or four of their albums later on, you know, were in the top ten in Salt Lake City. And uh, uh, that's where they really, really um, got their popularity started. And then Uh there, in Salt Lake City. And then uh, these disc jockeys at this radio station uh, would call their friends. You know, and tell them uh, about this great group, the Kingston Trio. Next thing you know, Miami's playing that album, and they're playing Tom Dooley, and, and you know, in different uh, different cities around the country. And uh, uh, so that's how that's how it really got started.
1: And the importance. Uh, to, well, tell us about Tom Dooley. I mean, that 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 was the the breakout, right? <laughs> Well, the guy's
0: guys name, the guy, the disc jockey's name in Salt Lake City was Paul Coburn, okay? Was the disc jockey who took a liking to that tune, okay? And he he had another guy that worked with him there called Bill Terry. Those were the two disc jockeys at the same station in Salt Lake City that really, really got it started. And uh, it, it, it was a top station. In Salt Lake City. And these guys had friends. They're just jockey friends around the country. And that's really how it got started. That's how the buzz started. And they loved Tom Dooley. But, you know, they had the album. They played everything on it. But, but Tom Dooley was the one that broke out. And it broke out in Salt Lake City. And uh, Paul uh, uh, Coburn would, uh, you know, would tell his friends all over the country in different different stations. And that's how it broke out.
1: And Tom Dooley, though, it becomes a number one uh, song uh, across the country, right, even around, you know, the world in Europe, right?
0: Well, yes, it did. Tom Dooley is based on a uh, a true story of a Confederate soldier, um, uh, Tom Dula. Uh Who uh, uh, killed uh, his lover? uh, I think her name was Laura Foster. uh, When he uh, found out that she had been untrue to him, guess while he was away, and it was a ballad that started back in the 1860s, and. it had been passed around, and it had even been, I believe, a popular tune in the late 1920s. And um, the trio heard it uh, from a guy, I believe his name is Frank Warner, who was a um, a folk uh, a folklorist and collector. Uh, who had picked up on that tune, and uh, either he or another gentleman uh, came to uh, auditions, open auditions at the Purple Onion one day, and that's where they first heard that tune, and the trio kind of rearranged it a little bit to their own liking, but essentially it's the same. It's an old tune that that, that uh, uh, became uh, Popular uh, after you know it had been it had, it had, after it had been amended uh, in some, to some degree by the Kingston Trio. It was great too, in another another way, another dimension, and that was it was easy to play. Um, basically two chords, and uh, it just caught. The public's uh, interest, and it and it became popular at a particular time in music, in the uh, uh, late 1950s. Okay, first of all, an alternative to rock and roll, which became wildly famous in the mid to mid 50s, primarily with Elvis Presley, 56, 57. 58, and then of course uh, Elvis went into the army, and Jerry Lewis, uh, uh, Lewis <laughs> had that bounced off the uh, the airwaves, uh, starting in England, I believe, because he had married his third cousin, and uh, and it was just a, an alternative uh, that caught people's ears that they really like. And as I said in my book, you know, uh, America has always had a warm spot in its heart for the occasional oddball record, you know, like the chipmunks. Tom Dillard did that, okay? Where did this come from? It came out of nowhere. It wasn't rock, it wasn't pop, it wasn't, you know, how much is that doggy in the window? It's, it, it's just totally different and it just grabbed people's imagination. And that was the start of it. People could see, you know, that that it was an accessible tune. That's one of the great uh, uh, things about the Kingston Trio. Their music was always accessible. You know, they were memorable tunes. They were easy to sing, and they were easy to play. And that really started another whole, that really started the folk revival, Mm -hmm. that that particular folk revival of the late uh, 50s and early 60s. So they got, they got them all. There had been other folk revivals, you know. These be would the Weavers earlier uh, versions of that. There's been a revival in the 40s. Uh, there had been one in the early 50s with the Weavers and uh, the,
1: the late one, the biggest one. That was the big boom. Okay, it was the
0: late 50s early 60s folk revival. That's what caught the ear of people like Bobby Dylan and Joan Baez, numerous other singers.
1: And they got very popular very quickly, right? It certainly did. Mm-hmm. Through
0: I mean, to this con- day, they are so closely associated with that.
1: Mm-hmm. And and they they did some con they toured a lot as well, right? As, as any band will do that's going to get popular like that.
0: <laughs> well, they did. They became very popular very quickly among college students. And um, they were really, uh, that was, uh, if you went to college in the late 50s and early 60s, remember the Kingston Trio was your group. And the Kingston Trio, Trio really started the popularity of the college concert. And they worked the college, major college uh, circuit all over the country. And they were enormously popular with college kids. And, um, you know, their, their popularity uh, at the same time, you know, they, they, they started, uh, uh, people started, you know, playing acoustic music. And the acoustic music, musical instrument uh, industry, came alive I mean it was one of the greatest people were playing banjos and you know the Kingston Trio played Martin guitars that's the only, virtually the only guitars they, they played and they were prominently displayed on every album cover that they ever had a Vega banjo and a, and a, and a Martin guitar Nick played a Martin tenor Bobby played a, a Martin D-28 um, Dave Gard uh, occasionally played a Martin Piccolo 28 I've seen him play uh, and they were always on the cover. And you know, back then, if you listen to it. It's the wonderful thing about album covers. You know, is that they give you something to look at while you're listening to the music. And people study them. You know, for but what is that? I remember one time when I went to high school in New Orleans. I had some King's and Trio albums, and I couldn't figure out what that what What that. Uh, label was on on the headstock of, of, Martin guitar, of Martin guitars. I didn't know they were called Martin. I didn't know that they were Martin guitars. And I went to a uh, music store on Canal Street, and I asked them, did they did they uh, handle have handle the same guitars that the Kingston Trio played? And the guy said, Oh yeah. And I said, are they called national? I couldn't tell what that scroll work was. But he said, no, he said, that scroll says C.F. Martin and company and and co. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, that's how Martin immediately, uh, you know, they were overwhelmed with orders for their guitars. And they were a little company. Uh, relatively speaking, an old line company, probably one of the oldest uh, musical uh, instrument manufacturers in the country. Um, they were in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. They were very popular among uh, country western players at that time, but it was essentially a small market when the Kingston Trio uh, became popular, the demand on Martin guitars was, was so big that they were back-ordered three years. And they eventually had to move to another, uh, build an, another factory there in Nazareth, so they, they could build more Martin guitars, that they could uh, manufacture. And that's really what, the, the whole, everybody benefited from the Kingston Trio at that time. So, yeah. so musical, instrument, musical instrument manufacturers, uh, you know, recording companies, uh, concert promoters, uh, you know, even, even fashion, uh, fashion took a, took a bump up, you know, striped shirts and everything and the Ivy League style and everything. Uh, all of it has its Genesis in that in that popularity at the Kingston Trio, that renewal of interest in all of this that
1: the Kingston Trio did. Mm-hmm. So so we we need to, to jump up quickly because I don't I don't want to, to leave John Stewart out of our story. So can you can you tell us of the 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 ousting the breakup of the original tour trio, the ousting of, of Dave Guard and subsequently John Stewart coming into the band, please?
0: Yes. Well, Dave Guard Dave was, a, was a key member of the Kingston Trail, uh, and whereas Bobby and, and Nick defined the sound essentially, Dave Gard really was a brilliant guy and a, and a brilliant arranger. And he was probably the only one in the, in the Kingston Trio at that time that read music. And he arranged a lot of those songs. Those were Dave Guard arrangements. And he'd say, okay, Bobby, you sing lead. Nick, you sing here. I'm going to sing here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. and And he was key to making that music what it was if you if you listen to the albums of Dave Gard era, they have a distinctive intellectual edge to them. They're very very um, they're very very intelligent intelligent songs and um, and most of those arrangements uh, came from Dave Gard. Although they could all they they all learned to head a range, but essentially. And uh, and as it went along, they had a problem with a, with a publisher who was using uh, uh, some of their uh, their music and. Uh, but he was retaining some of their royalties to cover his own gambling debt. And uh, they all had their own publishing companies within within the group. Dave got his check. The Kingston Trio had one where uh, their royalties were, were brought through publishing company. And Dave got a check for $15,000 from their publisher, and it uh, bounced. And that started the trouble. And Dave was furious, and, and he was determined that, from now on in, he would have control over the group. He would control what they sang, what they did, because they had they had called him in jest, but with a grain of truth, that he was their acknowledged leader. And even though they all worked very, very hard, safeguard was was a, was a key component, but they were all key components to it. And and he didn't like this music publisher, and uh, he was determined that that they were going to all be under his control at this point. And he didn't like Frank Werber either. He thought that Frank Werber was somehow in cahoots with this guy, which he wasn't, and that they would get a publisher of, of of his choice, Dave Gard's choice. So it really got down to, to push and shove, and he told them that that's what he was going to do. He was going to be the head of the Kingston Trio, and they were going to do exactly what he directed them to do, in effect. And that he was the only one really that he implied that he was the one that had all the talent and everything, so they they got together, and he said, it's either my way or I'm leaving. And they said, well, bye. And so that was the end of the first Kingston Trio. And it was very low time for them all. Dave Gard was a very, very good man. And, and despite what happened to them, but over the years, you know, they missed Dave Garden and they fought highly of, and, but nonetheless, they had to move, move on. And when they finally decided that they were going to go for it and they were going to get another person on the Kingston Trio, uh, which arrived, John Stewart. They knew John Stewart because he was just a young kid. He was a teenager, I think when he first met them, and he had written uh, some songs. Uh, Molly D was one of them. Here We Go Again uh, singing a song about Molly D, which is, as you know, the title of one of their albums was Here We Go Again, and, and uh, so they knew John as, as a songwriter. And uh, John was a huge uh, Dave Guard fan, and emulated him in lots of ways. He played banjo and he played it very well. Uh, he knew how to sing uh, all of the parts on the Kingston Trio song. He was uh, had studied them very carefully and studied uh, uh, Dave Gardner's and his influence. So he was unnatural to take over. I believe he was only 21 years old when he joined the trio. I believe they were five years or six years older than he was. But that's how John Stewart came into the picture, and they were able to prevail for another six years after that. Most people thought that when Dave Guard left, that would be the end of the Kingston Trio, and they certainly proved them wrong in that. The John Stewart Trio was a different uh, trio, but a trio, like the uh, Dave Guard Trio, well, they preferred it Dave Gard, the Dave Guard Trio with Dave Guard. But John Stewart, um, while he was a huge fan of Dave Gards, in, in my opinion, the second Kingston Trio, which was with John Stewart was did not have the intellectual edge for bite, perhaps the same as uh, Dave Gard. But in my opinion, it was more musical. It was more musical, it was more energetic, it was more young sounding, uh, and I think in, that it was certainly an equal in terms of, of the quality of recordings that they did uh, with the Dave Gardner albums.
1: It, well, in fact, in, in chapter 12, where you're going over their, their recordings, <laughs> you suggest that they're recording Time to Think, with, which is with John Stewart. You write that it's their finest hour.
0: It was. It was a beautiful album. It was a magnificent album. But there were others, too. Um, New Frontier. Great album. Number 16, a great album. I mean, if you listen to it. And you know what happened, too, Matt, is that those albums on Capitol at that time the technology that they learned at Capitol Records and Boyle Gilmore uh, of fattening vocals, of, of, double, of, of double voicing the choruses, run through those magnificent big old concrete uh, echo chambers. That were underground, under under the parking lot at Capitol, just gave that those those um, recordings such power. There was an engineer named named Pete Abbott. His real name was William Abbott, Bill Abbott, but they called him Pete. Pete was a nickname. Pete Abbott. Uh, who was their engineer, and who also was involved with uh, Boyle Gilmore in the editing and selecting of tracks? Those those uh, albums, even to this day, fifty years after the fact, are a marvel to listen to. Uh, Time to think was a, was a very special album in that. In that while they were recording it they had, you know everybody used to say well you've never done anything socially relevant in your songs you know it's always been you know uh, just lighter or fair and they wanted to do some songs that were um, uh, more socially conscious if you, if you will and while they were recording or they were in rehearsals excuse me while they were in rehearsals uh, for time to think, um, uh, John Kennedy, JFK, was uh, assassinated, and um, one of the songs on that album, uh, "Song for a Friend," is about uh, John Kennedy. was written the day after John Kennedy's, um, or second day after the. So. John Kennedy's assassination and there were some beautiful songs uh, all had um, serious meaning that's an important it's an important album in, in, in their career and and beautiful uh, but also the, the other songs the other albums they had done prior to that with, with John Stewart were terrific uh, uh Starting with Close Up, if you listen to Close Up, which was their first album with John Stewart on Capitol, it's, you can just tell it's, it's a different day altogether. It's, it's a really uh, enthused and rejuvenated Kingston Trio that sings on it, younger sounding because of, of Stewart and his whole spirit. Uh, the next album after that was College Concert, uh, which was recorded at UCLA uh fun uh a lot of humor a lot of interaction with the crowd uh, it just got better and better and better and better
1: you know so so why do they end well How i, do I
0: they think end? The, i think they ended Bobby Shane didn't want to end that trio. But John Stewart, this it started getting into the era of uh, you know, the protest era. And John wanted to write those songs, those types of songs. Wanted to write protest material, wanted to write those songs. Uh, and he was a patriot and he had gone to Selma, Alabama for the march. He just wanted to do different types of stuff. He was tired of doing the Kingston Trio stuff. He just wanted to do more songs. He wanted to be part of the uh uh, uh alleged genre of music of the you know, of the topical folk singer, the single performer, in fact. And he wanted to be a part of that. He wanted to do that. And at this time, the Kings and Trio have been together for ten years. And Nick said, "You know, I'm kind of tired of doing this too." And he had uh, he had bought a ranch up in Oregon, wanted to move to Oregon, which he did. And I've had you know conversations with, with Bobby about that, and, and uh, he, he said that, that he was ready to go too. He said that. But, but he was the one that really, I think, really would have preferred for it to continue on and, and eventually it did continue on with him. But the times were changing musically out there. And the Kingston Trio was still doing the same thing. They felt they weren't doing relevant music. And when they tried to do relevant music that was more like folk rock or more protest-oriented or just a different sound, uh, they did an album that... Um, and I believe it was called something else, which had uh, electric guitars and, and different uh, uh, electrical engines, drums. You know, the killer, the killer album, really, really good album. And why it never caught on, I don't know. I just think it was, it was no longer relevant. Maybe by the nature of the, of the material they were doing, it was no longer relevant. America was moving on. With different things, but they really, you know, they really nailed it in terms of, of doing something different, but it but it wasn't anything that, that uh, caught on enough for them to continue. So with that, they got together uh, with Frank Weber and they decided that they were going to disband the Kingston Trio. They were going to go out on the road for a year and do all of their farewell concerts and whatever. And uh, that would be the end of it, and that's what happened. And that's why the, the Kingston trio ended, essentially at the urging of uh, John Stewart, who wanted to move on. And Nick said, I think Nick was tired, and he wanted to move to Oregon, which he did. Beautiful ranch on the Elk River in Port Orford. And uh, Bobby started... Uh, he played for a while as a duo with Travis Edmondson, and then he did some solo uh, things and uh, different uh, in different venues. And then he uh, eventually reformed a group, uh, the Kingston Trio. He wanted to reform a Kingston Trio, and uh, the name was owned. The Kingston Trio was owned by Frank Warber, Nick Reynolds, and Bob Shane. So to be able to call it the Kingston Trio, uh, he had to lease the name from the two of them. But the caveat was that he couldn't call it the Kingston Trio. He had to call it the new Kingston Trio to distinguish it from the other group. And that was a requisite. He also gave up all his uh, royalties uh, from the Kingston Trio prior to that time. And uh, he had to those to them. And uh, so it became the new Kingston Trio, and then eventually he bought the name. Bobby bought the name outright from Nick and Frank, and it became the Kingston Trio again. And to this day, uh, Bob toured, toured with, was one of the, of the Kingston Trio again for a number of years. And then for health reasons, uh, he had to come off the road. And uh, uh, George Grove, who, who had been with him for many years, in those for mutations, um, other people were brought in to Dave Shane's place. And uh, today, uh, the Kingston trio is George Grove and uh, uh, Bill Zorn and Rick Doherty. And they're very, very good. Uh, Terrific musical group. And uh, and I think it were the evolution of the Kingston Trail. In spirit and sound, but they're a distinct group. They're their own distinct Kingston
1: Trail. So that's how that has evolved. That's that's, that's fascinating that they're, uh, you know, it's still a band, right? The band exists above and beyond now, really, the individual members at this point.
0: I think they are at this juncture. You have to understand, okay, that for some people, okay, there will only be the Shane, Reynolds, and Guard configuration as the real Kingston trio. There will be some that it will only be the Shane, Reynolds, and Stewart group that were the Kingston trio. And a middle group who said, either one of those two is fine. That's the Kingston Trio. Any group after that isn't the Kingston Trio. And there are some people who say, well, I love the music. And whoever's singing it and singing the Kingston Trio, Kingston Trio songs, that's the Kingston Trio. If they've been given the name, and, you know, Bob Shane Olson. And he was, he was that... He was that thread through all of it, And in fact, Nick Reynolds came back into the group in the 1980s and was was back out on the road with him for 10 years. And it was Shane Reynolds and Grove. You know, so there's, there's a thread all the way through. And, uh, but people love that music. And, uh... You know, some people love it only from Guard, some people love it only from the Stewart Trio, and some people love it however they hear it. You know, there are some people who have never, who are huge fans of the present Kingston Trio, who've never heard the earlier group, and only know the Kingston Trio that way, and that's legitimate.
1: Well, Bill... um... Thank you very much for being on our show. It's it's been a fascinating interview and uh, and it's a great book.
0: Thank you very much. I appreciate it, uh, 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 Matt. Thank you so much for having me on, and I hope that that uh, our interview will um, encourage people to certainly buy their music and, and listen to it and find out what it's all about. And uh, I sure hope they buy my book because that will help me a lot too. Because. Uh, <laughs> Then I can write another one. So, uh, Just kidding. Thanks a lot.
1: I appreciate your having All me right. on your show. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to a conversation with William J. Bush about his book, Greenback Dollar, The Incredible Rise of the Kingston Trio, released by the Scarecrow Press in 2013. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors about books on popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Alarman. Thanks for listening.